weekly dose of Wayne's Comics. It's episode 238 of the Wayne's Comics Podcast, and that means we have another doubleheader with two great interviews. I'm so glad you're listening. The first features the return of Kevin Joseph, creator of such great things as Tart and Underwars, as he talks about his new Kickstarter project, which is supporting the poodles of Potter's Peak, specifically targeted for children. He talks about why this is not an all-ages book and the reasons he wanted to make sure this comic happened. You can support his Kickstarter by going to that site and looking up Poodles of Potter's Peak. He'll give other information as to how to support his other books as well. Then I talk with Andrea Molinari and his son Roberto about The Shepherd, a comic that has a really interesting origin and deals with a father who's lost his son who's died in a drug overdose and how he decides to help him when he realizes that his son has not found his final resting place. It's a gripping supernatural book that I'm sure you're going to want to learn more about and it comes from Caliber Comics and you can support them by purchasing the book there or by catching up with them at conventions. It's a tremendous this series and I'm sure you're going to enjoy what the creators have to say. Of course, there's a lot to get to, so let's get on with the show. There are so many great comic books for kids, but there can never be too many great comic books for kids. At least that's what my family believes. My name is Kevin Joseph, and I've always wanted to write a comic my daughter could enjoy. When I saw the work of Jesse Sharon, I knew together we could make something special. She agreed, and we teamed up to create The Poodles of Potter's Peak. Our book is a silly romp starring six retired show poodles who protect their owner's secret brownie recipe from a neighborhood villain. You can tell he's a bad guy. Just look at that mustache. Jesse and I worked hard to make a book with enough story that an elementary-aged child can read it to themselves and be entertained but that's inviting enough to be read to toddlers as well. Our goal was a great comic. We think we've achieved that. But our dream is to provide a story so fun, you'll introduce the children in your life to comics using the Poodles of Potter's Peak. Some of the things we've done to make the comic perfect for even the youngest child are, the first few pages read like a storybook, before adopting the sequential art storytelling that makes a comic a comic. There are no staples. Our printer is using a technique called sewn binding, so there's no chance for a little one to poke themselves. And Jesse chose a color palette bright and energetic enough to engage even the youngest eyes. If this excites you as much as it excites us, then pile on the poodles of Potter's Peak. It's great to welcome back to the podcast Kevin Joseph, creator of Tart and Underwars, and has a new book in a Kickstarter that is going on right now, which you can support. Why don't you, Kevin, tell people the name of it? The new book is The Poodles of Potter's Peak, and it is our first book for children. I don't even like to say all ages because we wanted to make this perfectly safe for kids, probably about two to eight. Mm -hmm. 
And, of course, it's out on Kickstarter right now. And the good news is, even as we're recording, you have been successful in this. Do you want to talk about that? Oh, it's such a relief when you hit that funding goal. You're, of course, still trying to get the book out to as many people. It's not about the money you're raising anymore. It's about the number of people you can get to know the book exists. So you're still fighting to get backers, but there's <laughs> there's a lot less pressure. You're still going to get the book printed one way or the other, but how nice the book is, how much we can add into it. We have things like stickers and buttons for kids, and right now we're offering one set of stickers and one button, but if we can get a little higher, maybe we can give like two or three sheets of stickers and six buttons if we got to our final amount. So We're still shooting, but we're happy where we are as well. Because your original goal was $1,800, and as we're recording, you're over the $2,200 mark, and who knows what it is by the time you get to the end of the project. But it's so nice to have this. Now, when is this going to be concluded? Uh, the final day is Sunday, July 24th. We wanted to end on the end of a weekend, so people had time to wake up on Sunday morning bleary-eyed and go, oh, no, I forgot to do the poodle book. i got to do that. Mm-hmm. Very good. And it ends 11 to 4 in the evening, according to the website. So gives everybody a good chance to do this stuff. So this is really good. Talk to me about the concept of making a children's book as opposed to an all-ages book. Well, a lot of all-ages books that I absolutely adore, books like Amulet, Lilith Dark, Zeta the Space Girl, those are all really great all-ages books. And what we don't have in Poodles that they have is... In some form, whether it's cartoony or not, violence solves the issue. And what mm. we wanted to do was have a book where there was no violence. We created a danger to our six poodles that are in the house alone, and there's a very inept bad guy trying to break in. But we wanted a parent with a very young child to be able to show our heroes succeeding without any fighting or violence involved. Was that a challenge? Because you know, let's face it, comics these days, that's the, one of the centerpieces, especially in American comics, is that if you don't have action or adventure, people think it's boring. You know, what we tried to find, and Jesse Sharon is the artist on it, we tried to find humor on every page. And so we wanted those silly laughs to replace the punches and judo kicks. And I think we found it, obviously. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, so... Mm-hmm. And why the dogs? Because, you know, it, it's an interesting thing. They're show dogs. They're show poodles that have retired, and six of them, and they're trying to protect their owner's secret brownie recipe. Their true story is because I have two poodles at home, and my wife and I and our – she's now seven-year-old daughter. We just make up strange, weird, and funny personalities for our dogs, and it just kind of <laughs> led its way into the story. They're not retired show poodles. That part is fiction, but <laughs> the character Monty and the character Whitey are based after my two dogs. Ah, okay. Because there's a, an image on here, and it says poodle pile, and all the poodles are basically sleeping around or on top of each other which a lot of dogs will do. They'll take comfort from each other's presence and those kinds of things. So that's pretty cool. Is two the most that you've had, or have you had more than just two? In my life, I have had up to three, but my wife and I together, we've only had the two. When I was a kid, we had Frisky, who was the oldest mutt, Misty, we found on the streets, and then right at the tail end of their lives, just as they were getting real old, we had a Yorkie named Noli that we took in. So we did have three at one point, but three's the mm -hmm. most. Mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of cue this because you've got six poodles in here. Mm -hmm. 
was dealing with that many of them? Did you find that a little more of a challenge to do? Because most people don't have that many dogs. They only have a couple like you do. You know, I think that what we did, I had the personalities already created for Monty and Whitey because they were my mm-hmm. dogs. And mm-hmm. we just kind of found personalities for each of the other dogs. Brownie is more athletic. Mm-hmm. You know, Pinky is the very pretty pink male poodle who is maybe not so smart although real good-natured and a lovely dog, but maybe he's not so smart. So we just kind of found the personalities within, and those personalities led what those dogs were doing throughout the story. So it was a little tough to corral and make sure all six dogs had something to do and only 18 pages of comics, but Jesse really helped out by creating the dogs in such a distinct physical way. That the personalities shine through, even if we didn't give them an exact wording or a phrase that made them jump out. Mm-hmm. You know, dogs are very popular and stuff. There's like the Paw Patrol, I think, mm-hmm. on Nickelodeon, which is all dogs. Oh, my daughter loves those. I've never watched them, but whenever she goes to Grandma's, she watches those, and she comes back <laughs> and talks about them nonstop. There's something about a dog, because what they do is they develop this group mentality. They want to be with you. Right. You know, not many of them want to be on by themselves all the time. Most of them want to be around a, a human because of the, their natures yeah. and stuff like that. Cats are very different. Yeah, they're such pack animals. Yeah, which is cool. I think that's the that's what makes them pets is the fact that they like to be around us. And, and so, so the, the concept then, as you had the two dogs, did you and your daughter come up with this together? Was this something that you thought of as you were going through things, or how did the concept come up? This concept came out about four years ago. One of the cereal companies was having a short story competition, <laughs> and I just thought, well. Let me think if I can come up with something. And I mm-hmm. could not tell you. My daughter is probably about two years old. Maybe mm-hmm. it was lack of sleep. I don't know. Um, <laughs> somehow the story sort of came out, and it was always a very, very silly story. I was reading a lot of Mo Williams, the children's storybook author. I don't know if you know his work, but he did like mm-hmm. Edwina, the dinosaur that doesn't know she's extinct, and. Don't let the pigeon get on the bus. He's just a very silly, fun writer. Dave Pilkey, Sandra Boynton. I was just in that mindset for something very silly and very fun, and the story just kind of came out. And then about a year ago, I found out that Jesse Sharon was looking to collaborate on a book, and I'd always kind of followed her art and never thought I could work with her because she writes her own comics. Mm -hmm. But when I saw that she had an opening, I, you know... (laughs) <laughs> you don't catch a fish if you don't put the lure in the water. So I sent her an email, and it worked out that she liked the short story that I had, and we decided to adapt it into a comic book. Nicole, that's crazy. Now, I have to talk a little bit about the villain, of course. Yes, Leo. I would love that every time I see you, you discuss about the fact that you know that he's a real villain because of his mustache. Oh, absolutely. Look at that villainous mustache. I mean, you can just tell, right? <laughs> but of course, you know that he doesn't twirl it, though. At least I haven't read the book yet, so I don't know if he twirls it or not, which is, of course, the mustache-twirling villain it's, kind it's of It's very thing. possible that there's a frame in there that his fingers are on it. You can decide if he's <laughs> twirling or not. Uh, Yeah, the mustache was always there, but when Jesse sent me, we were trying to figure out, did he need a monocle, did he need a top hat? And Mm -hmm. when she sent me the photo of him with the bowler, I just went, Mm -hmm. get rid of the monocle. For some reason, that did it. The mustache and the bowler to me was just like, this is a tie the lady to the rain tracks villain, Mm -hmm. but... Mm -hmm. Our theory is he's so inept that even if the dogs didn't do anything, he probably still would not succeed. 
And that's what we love about Leo is he's a pretty inept villain. He's definitely not Dr. Doom. He's more Starscream for, or uh, what's uh, from G.I. Joe, uh, Cobra Commander. These right, guys are right. not going to, to succeed whether the good guys are in front of them or not. Mm-hmm. That's Leo. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned in the description at, at Kickstarter about the fact that you've got a very important step in front of you, and this is why I think it's important to talk about the Kickstarter as we are right now, is the fact that the printing is yet to come. Yes. And do you have you scoped out a printer? Do you have uh, somebody in mind as far as Yes, with Kraken Print, they're out of Chicago. The first book that I did with Tart, we worked with Print Ninja, and I actually had very nice things to say about Print Ninja. The mm-hmm. book came out beautifully. Mm-hmm. But one of the people we worked with actually parted ways, and I don't know the story behind how they parted ways, but they opened mm-hmm. up their own shop. And mm-hmm. she had been such a huge help to us that I said, mm-hmm. let's give these guys a shot. And ever since then, Kraken has printed everything that we've done, at least offset. When we do little 25 and 50 comic prints for a special con, we work with someone else. But mm-hmm. um, they do great. And what's great with them is they're very aggressive about coming up with new things that work for your books. Mm-hmm. I told them it was a kid's book, and they talked to me, and they said, you know, a lot of times if you're trying to get a comic into a child's hand, the staples can be off-putting. They said, mm-hmm. we have something called sewn binding, and they're actually going to sew the book together instead mm-hmm. of staple it. So it'll be a comic book, but there will be no staples. And I'm kind of excited about that because it's going to be something nobody else has, and I'm going to be able to put a book in a stroller, and mom and dad aren't going to have to worry about anything. You know, maybe a paper cut, but uh, I don't know that there's anything we can do about that. Mm-hmm. It's a really cool idea. Now, is the size the same as a regular comic, or is it a different It's size? going to be very, very much the normal comic book size, mm-hmm. you know, six inch I by see, I inch, whatever that is. And one thing I noticed that you're doing, too, is you're doing a sketch cover yes. of that. Do you want to talk a little about that? You know, I really wanted something that was unique and different and something that would work. Everything I wanted to do was, okay, so you're probably buying this book for your child. What could be fun for them? So we thought of mm-hmm. stickers and we thought of buttons. And I thought, well, they can draw their own cover. So there's the technology to do a sketch cover. Uh, and I talked to Kraken and saw how much it would cost, and it was within the budget as long as people paid a little bit extra, and and so we wanted to do that. But I wanted to be a completely separate book, so you'll be getting your two regular copies and your sketch cover for your child to draw on, color in, do anything they'd like. Or our artist friends who are supporting us, they have my blessing to get that book and draw their own take on the poodles and hey, maybe they can sell it at a con and get their money back for backing us. Mm-hmm. Much- Which is cool. Yeah. You know, another thing I noticed, too, about there is, let's just say, you're making available the PDF with freedom to share. Yes. Not many people do that. Most people want to try to keep it restricted. You know, if you get a PDF, don't get it out to people. But you want that. You want to share that with people. Do you want, you want to share about what the idea is behind that? The idea is that I personally believe wholeheartedly that I am in the comic book business to gain readers. I'm not in the business to make money. The money allows me to do more books and hopefully devote more time to it. So eventually, yes, I'd love this to be a career where that's enough income is generated that eight hours a day I can work on making funny books. We're not there right now. I still have to do my day job or night job, (laughs) as it were. Um, But that's okay. And I feel like People read the book, they will eventually buy the book because I'm so pleased with how it turned out. And you know what? Mm -hmm. With pirating these days, 
I couldn't stop anybody anyway. So mm-hmm. why not give our blessing? If you mm-hmm. pledge $5, I'll send you a PDF. And since we've made funding, I'll send it right now to you. And if you know somebody mm-hmm. you think would like the book, send it off. Mm-hmm. And that's with my blessing. You know, I interviewed somebody in the UK one time, and he said that his book didn't go until somebody pirated it. And once it went out into all the sites where all the people did the pirating, people started to like it. So they actually started to buy the book, and it turned it into a success. I'm not sure everybody feels that way about it, but there's a case that agrees with what you're saying, is that if you can get it into the hands of people and they like it, they will often go after it and purchase Yes, I am. I want someone to read the book. If they buy the book, wonderful. And, you know, if they... Get it from a friend, wonderful. I have no problem if someone is a library with my books and hmm. they buy the book and they lend it out to 15 people. That's great. That's 15 mm-hmm. more people that read the book as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Which is cool. Uh, you want that kind of stuff. You want people to be able to read. Now, the, the interesting thing is because you've know, been successful with your Kickstarter already. Of course, we encourage people to continue to contribute You know, so that uh, the, any other expenses that might come along, especially getting the book out and, and getting into people – can be met. Sure. Do you have other kids' books in mind for after this That's one? That's a really great question. There are none exactly in the pipeline, mm-hmm. but I am interested in doing it. Mm-hmm. Jesse and I have talked about if there's some stories to go with the poodles, could we do that? And mm-hmm. I, I do have one idea that is a great concept, but I have not found the story for I think some people are really great about putting together high-concept books, and mm-hmm. they don't worry if they have the story. I need the story before I can put my time in. So as soon as I figure out the story for that concept, I will go wholeheartedly into it. I also say I love the – they have T-shirts available, yes. which I love. That that design of the poodle pile is on the T-shirt, at least one of the designs of the poodle yeah. pile. And it's great stuff. Now, let's just say that somebody, for some reason, can't contribute to the mm-hmm. Kickstarter. How are they going to be able to get this book, like, like digitally or uh, in print form, in the future? Well, obviously, when we get the books in hand, we will send into Diamond. But there mm-hmm. is a process involved where, you know, I can't make any guarantees that they will accept us. So. Mm-hmm. If we get into Diamond, then they'll be able to go to their local comic shop and grab it. If we do not, then they'll be able to buy it online with us, catchallcomics.com. They can always get to me at different shows, or we'll be putting it up on Comixology Submit once the Kickstarter is over. So there will be sp- ways. Do you want to spell Catch All Comics? Sure. K-E-C-H-A-L-C-O-M-I-C-S. That's a really good idea because... I outsmarted myself and <laughs> and got sneaky, and it didn't work out well. Because yeah. I would think it'd be catch all like C A T C H A L L, which it is. I am. I am. A lot of people say, "Are you Kiko Comics?" And I'm like, "We're catch all," but yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> so there's good stuff. Stickers you can get, buttons you can get. You've got all kinds of wonderful things to get out. So I highly encourage you go to Kickstarter.com, look up Poodles of Potter's Peak. And you'll find it there, and don't kind of say, oh, they've got enough money. They don't need my donation. I would say get in there and make this a, a biggest success as possible so there'll be more in the future by donating. You can donate anywhere from, what, a dollar up to 
Let's see what the most you could do is like $200 or more. So if you really believe in the project, this is your chance to get on board and to make this a big success and get more of this in the future. And the better we do, and this is a self-serving statement, so I'll put that out there before I I say it, but the better we do with this book, the more publishers will believe that kids' comic books can sell, and the more Mm -hmm. local comic shops will put it in. And if we can create a love of comics in these young children, then... 20 years from now, we're going to have a whole population of kids. And I don't think Mm -hmm. my one comic book will do that, but my comic book added to Owly, added to Hero Cats that uh, Action Lab is putting out. Lilith Dark is another great one. I already said Amulet, Bone. You add all of these books together, and kids are going to fall in love with the medium. And when they're old enough, then they're going to find out about Alan Moore and Watchmen and Neil Gaiman and Sandman. And then all of a sudden, wait, that guy that did the Poodle book has a book called Tart? You know? I'm willing to wait for them to be old enough to read Tart, but I'd sure love to build the love of comics right now. Well, you've just presented the perfect segue. Let's go into the other books that you're making. How is Tarte doing? You were at uh, Florida Supercom when I saw you most recently, and you were selling Tarte. In fact, we had somebody come by the booth, and somebody said, where's the Tarte booth? And he said, oh, over this other aisle. Just go the next aisle over, and there he is. And so, you know, Tarte is going along still real well. Do you want to just give a you know, granted, this is not a Poodles of Potter's Peak book, but what description would you give to people? Well, you know, because I'm still in Supercon mode, and you can hear my voice, I'm still in Supercon voice um, as I try to. Tart is the story of a time-traveling demon hunter. She's basically a young woman who wakes up at the beginning of each adventure without any idea where she is or when in time she is. She just knows somewhere near her is a demon causing trouble, and it's up to her to stop it. Mm-hmm. Sort of a Buffy meets Doctor Who with a little Sandman thrown in for taste. So where are we with that book? How many issues have come we out We have so far? printed five issues, myself and co-creator Ludovic Saleh. Ludovic, unfortunately, has had to step away from the project due to basically having to make enough money to live, and I totally understand it. It's one of those things that Indie Comics, he put his heart and soul into it, and it shows on page. But he has mm-hmm. to put his heart and soul into something that's going to pay the rent for a little while. Right. I don't have anything contractually signed. We met someone who was exhibiting at Supercon. They have read the five issues, and I have sent the script. It looks like we may have an artist for issue six, but unfortunately, I can't quite say any names just in case it doesn't go through, but I'll have to say, even if it doesn't go through, just to have a pro who's really done what this artist has done, be open-minded enough to even look in and explore says a lot about the person. So even if I'm disappointed and don't have a new artist, I have a great deal of respect for this one particular person. You never know. Maybe in the future there'll be something else you want to do, and that person will be available for that. So you just never know. So let's talk about the other book that you've been doing. That's called Under Wars. Describe that one, why don't you? That is the story of a mild-mannered monkey plucked from the jungle who, by a rad scientist who, on a whim, throws men's tidy-whitey underwear on him, and Baxter can immediately speak and kung fu fight because science. Mm-hmm. Now you know why we call our company Catch All Comics, because <laughs> between those three comics, I mean, we've got pretty much three of the four quadrants. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Now, basically, the Underwars, how many issues of those are out? Three of those are out. So, are you working on yes, four? Four is about 80% drawn. So, we're mm-hmm. very excited to get issue four out because the story begins in the lab with Baxter. The scientist is mm-hmm. a real insane, perfectly insane scientist. Now, don't call him a mad scientist, he's a rad scientist. The difference mm. is a mad scientist built exploding nuclear robots to take over the world. Rad scientists build exploding nuclear robots because they are awesome. <laughs> so he uh, he sees that the monkey works, and he goes and he grabs a bunch of different animals. All the other animals develop the ability to talk, but they also develop severe personality disorders. So Baxter's mm. stuck in a lab with about 12 insane animals and an insane scientist. Well, issue mm. four, they break out. So we're we're cool. excited. We call it into the lab. We're also excited to get out of the lab and get going on the rest of the series. Very cool. Now, these are, of course, available. We see you at conventions. Why don't you list other upcoming conventions you want to mention? Uh, yes, I'll be at PalmCon in, I believe, September. I believe, I'm 85% sure I'll be at New York Comic Con in October. Ooh, they good. haven't gotten back to me about the final payment, but... I've paid my deposit, and I'm ready to pay them more. So I, I believe I'll be at New York Comic Con for the fourth year in a row. Wow. Those are the two guaranteed, and we're doing a couple of different local comic shops. But July 23rd, anybody in South Florida can come see me Saturday at Tate's Not at Comic Con event, because I will not be at San Diego Comic Con. I'll be at Tate's instead. Mm-hmm. Well, somebody who's been to Comic Con one time, and it took about a week or two to recover from it. I don't mind going to other events that are not necessarily Comic Con. There's always on Facebook these little somebody makes a thing that says "Not going to Comic Con." You put that as your uh, illustration yeah. on there, so because it's just well, nothing. I don't want to divert too long, but the thing that's Comic Con, I'm getting a little discouraged is the fact that it's so much more media right. con than is comic. It's like a quarter of the thing is comics these yeah, days. Yeah, we're not even looking to get there. We're very happy to have our little spot at New York Comic Con where people know where to come find us and stick on the eastern seaboard at this time. Maybe if we go that way, maybe we'll try Emerald City. That seems a little Mm -hmm. more our speed. Everybody always talks about Emerald City. It's hard to get a booth in there now. They have a long waiting list, apparently, but it's always a good idea to do it. What about digital and print? If people want to get that, is that like Comixology? Can you go through that? Amazon? I only have Tart on Comixology now. They can always approach me on Twitter. My call sign is at B-N-O-K-J, or reach me through the catchallcomics.com website. Again, K-E-C-H-A-L, comics. Mm-hmm. We have a Shopify store on our Tart Facebook page, so we can always get you our books through the mail. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly enough, I did not put any of our books involved in the Poodles Kickstarter because our other two books are at least 15 and older, and they're not too mm-hmm. bad. But you know, I, I call them hard PG-13s or soft R's, mm-hmm. and I didn't feel that they worked with the kids' book. But mm-hmm. if someone pledged for the Poodles of Potter Speak and was getting the comic shipped to them and wanted mm-hmm. an issue of Tart or Under Wars, I would definitely pack them in. They could just pay right through the Kickstarter mm-hmm. and then they'd save mm-hmm. shipping because cool. they'd be paying the one shipping as opposed to multiple. Very cool. I always think it's a great sign of a writer when you can write a variety of things. You don't only have to write one kind of story. And you write a big variety of things, which I think is terrific. Either that or someone who can't calm themselves down into one thing. I'm not sure which sometimes, but I will take the compliment and say I appreciate that. Well, again, I say get out there and support. 
this book. I think you're going to enjoy it. Kickstarter. Go look for Poodles of Potter's Peak. And if you like what you read there and you've got a taste for something a little different, find Kevin on Facebook. And I'm sure he can put you in touch and get these good things to you. So, Kevin, again, keep up the great stuff. You guys do wonderful things. And I'm really glad that Kickstarter is going well by you. And hopefully good things will happen. Always a pleasure to see you at cons and to talk to you. Thank you, Wayne. People need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy, and I can't do that as Bruce Wayne. As a man, from flesh and blood, I can be ignored, I can be destroyed, but as a symbol. Get the latest from the comics universe. News, interviews, previews, and reviews. Listen to the weekly Wayne's Comics Podcast, so you can keep reading your comics. Welcome to the podcast, Andrea Molinari and Roberto Molinari, creators of a really fascinating book called The Shepherd. How are you doing today, Andrea? I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me on the show. Did I pronounce that right, by the way? It's Andrea. Andrea. It kind of throws people off. My father was actually Italian. I'm dead giveaway with a Molinari for the last name, right? But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is basically the equivalent of Andrew. Uh, right. But as I used to tell my father, that was great on that side of the Atlantic, but unfortunately, I grew up on this side. That's right. People often think you're a woman. I bet, by the All way. the time. But yeah. believe me, the first day of class was a nightmare. <laughs> Imagine six classes in a row where they're taking roll call, and they call Andrea Molinari, and I raise my hand, and they're like, you know, I've been teaching for 12 years. You're not going to throw that fastball past me on the first day. <laughs> you know, And then you have to go into that litany of explanations six times it's always great so. that's right now roberto i think I, that's right isn't it yeah thank you okay i get one right that's a, a, a 50 50 shot at it. i'm doing pretty well then when it comes to that so we're here to talk today about your book called the shepherd why don't we start off with you andrea and talk about the way that uh, the, the book came to be and ba- what the basic premise is to of course roberto you can come into it if there's something that you need to jump in on Okay. Well, I guess we'll start with how it came to be. And this is going to sound odd, but it basically has its origins in a nightmare that I had. You know, I tell this to people all the time. I'm not the kind of person who has dreams in the sense of that I remember them. I have dreams just like everybody else. But for the most part, you have these vivid dreams and you wake up and you want to tell somebody about it. And it's like, it just kind of slides through your fingers like sand and it's gone. Mm -hmm. And this one was very different. It was a very intense dream. And the basic idea in this dream is I dreamed that my oldest son, Roberto, had gone to a party and uh, tried methamphetamine and it killed him. Mm -hmm. And it was devastating because not only did that event happen, but a whole sequence of events followed in the wake of that event. So unlike a lot of dreams where you kind of get this disjointed funhouse mirror effect, this was almost like being strapped into a roller coaster, a very horrible roller coaster. And then just being taken on to the end of the ride, so to speak. And I woke up, my heart beating out of my chest, covered in sweat. And my wife was like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I said, I don't know if you want to hear this. And she said, tell me. And I told her. And she said, no, you're right. I didn't want to hear that. 
Mm-hmm. She was very upset with me yeah, when I told her, needless to say. And it took me a while, a couple, I think a day or so before I was able to get to the point where I could tell Roberto about it. But his reaction was nothing like what I expected. It was, oh, that's really cool. And, mm-hmm. and uh, from that point on, he began to say, Dad, we should really do this up as a story. This would be a great comic book or a graphic novel. And and I was up to my neck in work. I was doing educational administration. I was teaching at the university level, uh, writing scholarly stuff. And I just didn't have time. I just thought there's no way. But then in June 2011, I had kind of a stop in my schedule where it just had a window. And it's like Berto sensed that and pounced. And he had never given up the idea. He had pestered me about it, just continued to pester me. And in June 2011, we sat down and started hammering this thing out. And I thought it was going to be very difficult, but instead it just kind of flowed out of me just like water. Mm. And inside the space of a month, the entire first draft was written. And, you know, it just was kind of a stunning experience. And so I thought to myself, okay. process came. And that was was, uh, forever. But I thought it was done. I thought my whole thing was, okay, Beryl, you're happy. Here it is. I've written it up. Okay, good. It's done. He's like, oh, no, no, we need to find an artist now. And I'm like, okay, because there are artists like living next door to us and we're in the midst of an artist community and this shouldn't be any problem. Um, How we do this? And he's like, well, you've heard of this thing called the Internet. And so we went on the Internet and we sat by each other and just started looking. And we ended up finding a company that's kind of a studio that does everything. It's called Scattered Comics Studios out of Sacramento, California. And its uh, owner's a really great guy by the name of Jason Doobie. And you go on the site, and he literally has a menu of different artists. You can pick one that fits the style, the mood that you want. They have different colorists, letterers, uh, all that stuff. And so literally the entire comic book can be put together right in under the auspices of that company. And so Jason basically works as your project manager. And it was really an amazing experience because I had written, and the closest I had come to this is that I had written a novel before this graphic novel, The Shepherd. And I had had an illustrator who was a comic book illustrator. His name is Tyler Walpole. And he works for, you know, Marvel. He's done work for DC and a lot of different companies. And he did illustrations for the novel that I did. But it was like 33 one-page illustrations. Mm -hmm. And this was a very different experience. So that's kind of the how it came to be process. I mean, there's certainly more we could say, but that's kind of the answer of how it came to be. Now, Roberto, were you the comics guy in this collection, or did you and no, your dad share I am, I am the inheritor here. Uh-huh. Basically, dad liked comics as a little kid and went through his entire life liking comics. He had his comic book revival, actually, with uh, Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. Oh. And basically, I was fed comics from a young age, mm-hmm. just because that was a really convenient medium to begin reading with as a young child. Uh, especially since there was a lot of stuff that was aimed at that group. So I had comics growing up and pretty consistently throughout my entire life. My dad has a pretty sizable collection, and growing up, one of the things that I would do is I would go up to him, I would like ask him what he's got in his collection, and then I would just take like an entire um, like a file box. Dad, what are those boxes long called? Box. A long, a long box. box. Yeah, I would take like a long box of whatever run it was, and then I would just basically read it start to finish. And that was how I picked up the habit. Very, very cool. Now, I've got to ask you, Andrea, the, uh, you're a theologian, right? I am. I am a theologian. I have a doctorate in theology from Marquette University. 
I don't find many theologians, to be honest, in my experience, who really <laughs> get into comics. What was it about comics that drew you to them in the beginning and then also when you discovered uh, Dark Knight Returns? Well, I think at that time, and this is in the 70s, a lot of kids read comics. None of us had a lot of money. I can remember my dad letting me, when I'd go to the store with my father, he'd say, you can buy one comic, or if I was really good, I could get two comics. And I used to love the comics that you could get where there would be more than one superhero in them, like a Brave and Bold. I love that. And also, you know, the Justice League, because you could get a lot of superheroes in one or the Avengers or something like that. And my buddies were all doing the same thing with their dads. And so we would go to the school on the school bus and we'd pass around these dog-eared issues. You'd have a run, but you'd have the first issue of a three-part story, but never read the end of it. Mm. And you're reading everything from The Punisher to Spider-Man to The Hulk and Iron Man. And you're just kind of, whatever your buddies are reading, you're reading that too. Mm -hmm. And that was my experience. And of course I had my favorites. I don't think it's anything out of the ordinary. I love Batman and Green Arrow mm -hmm. in DC. They were arguably my favorites. And then in Marvel, it would be as a child, Spider-Man and Daredevil. Mm -hmm. And Daredevil had a very special place in my heart because he was Catholic and I grew up Catholic and, mm -hmm. and he struggles with his religion. And that really meant something to me. Mm -hmm. And so those are kind of my experiences. And then I kind of grew up and got older in high school. It wasn't cool to read comic books anymore. And so I kind of gave them up. And then I got to college and a buddy of mine, his name is Eric. Eric gave me, he said, you know, you used to read comics. And I said, yeah, yeah, I did. I was a kid and I kind of grew out of that. And he said, well, I want you to read this. And he gave me this book called The Dark Knight Returns. And I read it and it was like mind blown. And it was like, because I had grown up, you need to understand, people in this generation are used to a dark Batman. Mm -hmm. The Batman that we grew up with, and I think I'm, Wayne, you're probably, you know, I'm 48, so I'm mm -hmm. guessing you're probably not far from me mm -hmm. in age. Mm -hmm. I grew up with Burt Ward and Adam West, and then Batman, who's consulting openly with Commissioner Gordon and talking to police officers. And now suddenly you read this Batman take that he's breaking people's bones mm -hmm. and he is instilling fear mm -hmm. in these people and he's on the run and he's dangerous and people hate him and they fear him and there's conflict about how the public feels about him and it made sense it really made sense and that really brought me back in a lot of ways i would say that my comic book reading because i would have read that in 1985 86 from that point on my comic book reading has been like a junkie where I'm always looking for that same feeling when I read a book. Mm -hmm. And I've had it. There are different ones that I've read since then that have done that mm -hmm. for me, but I'm always chasing that comic book high, mm -hmm. so to speak. Mm -hmm. yep. We're all that way. I mean, that, there was a time, I don't know if you ever read it, there was a Justice League that was written by Grant Morrison in which Batman was there and he was fighting white Martians. And, of course, every one of them is Superman-level power, and he's putting a ring of some fluid around. We don't know what. And all of a sudden, three of the Martians, of course, they're made to look like superheroes are there. And they say, well, little man, any last words before we pound your bones to dust? And Batman says, a few. And he goes to explain that they're white Martians, which we hadn't known before. And all of a sudden, he pulls out this match, and, he, and, he, and the lady goes, well, uh, that's a very interesting uh, theory. Uh, uh, and he lights the match, and he throws it into the thing, and they're all going, what's that awful smell? What is that? Of course, it's gasoline that he's poured around. And this fire shoots up, and Batman is there, and he puts his fist into his hand, and he goes, 
ready. <laughs> and to this day, I still ask one. I can remember where I was when I read it. I can remember the whole because I remember sitting there thinking, "There's no way in this world Batman's getting out of this. There's no way." Yeah. And I yeah. just went when he had this. In fact, he was ready before they ever got came around there. He knew what he was going to do. I just adored that. And to this day, that's one of my. This is the kind of experience you're talking about. You know, it Definitely. just it stays in there with you. Well, how about you, Roberto? Do you look at comics in kind of the same way? Do you have different heroes? or How's your comic reading experience been? Has it been consistent, or have you had a break like the rest of us had? Mm. Uh, I would say that it's definitely been a break since I left for college, just because like I don't have access to uh, comic books in the same way that I used to. Mm-hmm. I also have had a little bit of a change in taste. Like, anybody that listens to me, I will basically sing the praises of uh, Mike Mignola and Hellboy basically until I'm dead. I think it's, you know, absolutely outstanding. Hellboy is, I think he's probably my favorite superhero now. But outside of that, I almost get stuff vetted now by dad, who will occasionally just send me stuff. Like, he consistently reads stuff. And then every once in a while, he'll come across something that was uh, really good. Like, a while ago, he sent me a, a run of Iron Fist. I don't even remember who it was by. It's been a little bit, but... Brubaker and Fraction. Yeah. But basically, he'll read the storyline... And once he's given it the the A-OK that it is basically really good stuff, he'll send it to me. Great. Because, you know, I have to say, my dad couldn't understand the thing about comics. He'd look at them and go, oh, well, keep you quiet. You know, you're reading. It's a good thing. So it was a very different experience for me. Although, like you, I dropped out for a little while, Andrea, but the, the thing about it. And I came back. It was the New Teen Titans by Perez and Wolfman that brought me back. My brother had read them consistently. And I was living in the Washington, D.C. area. And he said, look, you've got to find this number one New Teen Titans. I, I can't find it. Find it for me. So I found a store that had it. They were selling it for $2, which at that time was an like outrageous price <laughs> for me. And I said, I am not spending two dollars for a number one my brother said get back there and buy it i don't care how much it costs i'll pay you back so <laughs> i bought that for kind of thing so it's it's an interesting experience how you people move in and out of comics and a lot of times come back now the shepherd give me the basic premise of what but you've already explained on many levels what's going on in the book is there a purpose behind the shepherd andrea is there is is there something that you know you're trying to communicate with the shepherd well i think I'll answer that in two parts. One is unfold the premise a little bit more. Mm -hmm. In my dream, because what I did is basically write the dream. In my dream, when I lost my son, Mm -hmm. I was absolutely devastated, as you would expect. Mm -hmm. But in the process of me collapsing in on myself in grief, I began to feel that something had gone terribly wrong. Like, you know, here I am, a person who's a theologian and all this. And I'm feeling that my son didn't transition, that something went wrong, that he didn't make it to the other side, to heaven or whatever you want to call it. And I began to get desperate. And in the midst of that sense of desperation, and I was losing it, like losing my mind, I decided that I would take my own life and go after him. Mm -hmm. And so chase him, as it were, into the afterlife. And of course, I think what was rattling around in my head is that in the midst of my theological studies, I've done a lot. Most people, when they hear theology, they think in terms of religion and religious works. But what they don't realize is that there's a lot of contextual, historical, cultural stuff that you're reading. And my area is the ancient world, the Greco-Roman world. So I'm reading Virgil's Aeneid Book 6, which is the journey in the afterlife, Plato's Book 10 of the Republic, these classic journeys into the afterlife, the Gilgamesh epic, uh, these kinds of things. 
And so this is all rattling around in my head. And so this idea of going into the afterlife, searching for those people that you care about that are lost there, I think was there in my subconscious. And that's kind of how this thing played out in the dream. Mm-hmm. And so the rest of it, without spoiling the story, the rest of it is my search in the afterlife for my son. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that this idea of a journey in the afterlife, souls that haven't quite transitioned, mm-hmm. that whole concept is something that's very interesting to me. And really, The Shepherd is not just one graphic novel. Mm-hmm. Roberto and I have already written a sequel to the graphic novel, and we're doing the page-by-page work on that. And meanwhile, while the art is being done on that, both of us are writing the third and fourth story arts respectively. Mm-hmm. So this is we really see this as a series. And each of these stories are stories where the main characters engage souls in the afterlife that have some kind of trauma related to them that is preventing them from moving on. And Mm. so to characterize the shepherd is very much to say this is a character that is a supernatural character Mm. that works largely in the afterlife, although is capable of transitioning into this world and works with souls that are disturbed. To maybe to help you with this a little bit, I'm a huge fan of Guillermo del Toro. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you're familiar with his work, mm-hmm. but I love his ghost stories. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple that he's been associated with. One, The Devil's Backbone. If you have not seen this movie, mm-hmm. and I speak to your listeners in this regard, mm-hmm. go see that movie. Mm-hmm. Get it. Get your hands on it. It's incredible. And basically, it's a ghost story. And it's a ghost story with unresolved issues. It's not just to scare the viewer, Mm -hmm. but really to kind of explore why this soul seems to be haunting this particular place. He did that recent ghost story, Crimson, what was it, Crimson Peak or something I think it was. Mm. I can't remember the exact title of it. But again, like myself, he seems to like stories, ghost stories that deal with souls that are coping with unresolved issues from this life. Now and I so got, in a lot of ways, that's what the shepherd does. Okay. Now i got to ask you, of course, there's a subtitle that starts with the letter A, which I have sat and tried <laughs> to pronounce correctly. Is that Greek? Is that Latin? Yes, it is. It's, it's Greek. Greek. It's apocatastasis. Okay. And basically, it is a concept from the ancient world that starts in Greek philosophy and is eventually picked up by major Christian thinkers. And it's the idea of universal restoration and the idea that every soul will find its way to God. Mm. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that everybody is given like a blank check. So in other words, do whatever you want in this life and there are no consequences. Mm-hmm. Au contraire. Mm-hmm. There are, in fact, consequences. But the idea in apocatastasis is that no soul is damned for all eternity mm-hmm. and that each soul goes through a process of purification or the Greek word apocatastasis translates to restoration. Mm-hmm. And that's really what this whole story is all about, the idea of restoration of souls. And how might that play out? How might that actually happen in the afterlife? Of course, in a fictional setting. Mm-hmm. Now, Roberto, one of the things I'm really interested about is these days there seem to be more and more comics dealing with theological or religious terminology. I just interviewed a couple of weeks ago a guy by the name of Frank Martin who did a book called Modern Testament in which he was dealing with religious themes. And I honestly, I'm always a little surprised, me being something of a spiritual person, and you guys obviously the same, dealing with a lot of comic readers who are not necessarily interested in religion. 
Mm. When you guys did this, was that kind of a challenge as far as putting the writing together? Because that's kind of a dark book, I've got to say. There's some real darkness in this that I was very surprised by how dark it got. How did you guys approach that, Roberto? Did your dad want to go because of his experience with Dark Knight? Did he want to go the darker route? Did you bring that in? How did those elements get involved? (laughs) So by the nature of the story, Mm -hmm. like the nature of the nightmare itself was a a fairly dark tale. Mm -hmm. I was actually pushing for it to be like one of the arguments that we had uh, when we were trying to figure out how to present this is the question about whether or not the spirits would kill. Mm Mm-hmm. I pushed that they would be able to, and Dad was against it from the start mm-hmm. because that wasn't the tone mm-hmm. that we wanted to go for. And the thing is, we argued about that for I think it might have even been as long as like a month and a half. <laughs> like I'd say years. We still debated. I mean, <laughs> sort of, sort of. I mean, we're kind of like debating on how violent it should be. Mm-hmm. But that particular debate, basically, I pushed that uh, they should be able to kill. Dad uh, was against it. And eventually, I've kind of come around to his way of thinking that for these characters, it doesn't really fit with them. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely got a lot of possibility for really dark themes. Mm-hmm. My dad was just talking to me about the fourth story arc that he has uh, just finished uh, conceptualizing. And that one is going to be... That will probably be, from the limited amount that we've talked about, it, it will probably be the darkest one mm. uh, so far. Wow. As for the religious stuff, Mm -hmm. I would say I'm not tremendously worried about turning off atheist or agnostic readers from it just because of the way that it's written isn't – and this is something that we've actually been complimented on a lot is that it's not preachy. Mm -hmm. This isn't written in the way where it's telling everybody this is what we believe and you guys should believe it too. It's more like this is a story in which in this universe, this is the mechanics of the afterlife and how things function there. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's not theological in the sense that we're trying to teach everybody that so much as it is theological nature, and that happens to be part of the story. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I'm finding more and more that religion is not a uh, off-topic, but different place that comics don't want to go anymore. It's a place where we actually kind of poke in. And, you know, it's fiction, too. So what you're doing is you, you guys are basically kind of showing us within the frame of the story, how you think this all might work. So it's not necessarily a theological discussion as much as it is a uh, telling of the story. And I would say, you know, if I can add, chip in here, Wayne, is that I think religion permeates comic books. (laughs) I think it's all over the place. There are the obvious ones like Constantine, Preacher, some of the other titles, obviously the Hellboy, the Hellboy title springs to mind. Religion is heavily present in these stories and even titles that are not necessarily religious overtly they have a very strong ethical component Mm -hmm. the ethics about what's right and what's wrong and wrestling with that characters like batman the classic thing should he kill joker Mm -hmm. and i talk about this all the time by logic you would think to yourself you probably should kill joker because that would prevent any further killings on his part But I talk to him is that, you know, are we supposed to use the methods of darkness to fight darkness? Because in the so doing, do we not ourselves become darkness? Mm -hmm. And I think in a lot of ways, if you watch some of the interactions between Batman and the Joker, the Joker would like very much for the Batman to kill him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is because he knows that if he does, then he becomes that much more like the Joker. Mm -hmm. He's pulled him 
into his world, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And he would like nothing better, I think, than to be able to do that. So that's kind of a shorthanded way of just saying is I think that religion and the ethical questions and philosophy, that these things are deeply entrenched in comic books and that well, you just got to look and recognize what it is that's in front of you. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say, if you haven't read Injustice or played the video game, the whole thing starts off with the Joker killing Lois Lane. Mm. And we follow Superman's reaction. It changes everything in, the, in that DC universe. It's, it's not the same as the comics, it's, it's several, although they have a series of like digital first comics. Superman's reaction to that, it, it changes him at his core. So it's interesting you talk about that and how the Joker wants to. Oftentimes, you want to think that Joker wants to make everybody else darker around him as a result of that. So now he's very much the devil on that level, which I really like. Now, now Roberto, the thing I got to kick too is that there's a character in there that's based on you. Mm-hmm. You start off with something, and I don't get it all the time, but I actually figured out what was going on in recent, relatively early in the book as to what your role was in the book. So, and I don't want to spoil it here, but uh, I got a kick. That we see, and he's called Val in the comic, rather than Roberto, and we get to see what happens to him and the family's reaction and stuff. Was the concept of that character based on you? How much, how close did you want that to be like you? Val is. Definitely based off of what I was like as uh, basically a 16-year-old. So writing the character going forward has been kind of an interesting thing just because I'm trying to imagine what I would be Mm -hmm. like if I had gone through the stuff that Val went through. Mm -hmm. So at the time of writing the first one, Val was pretty much like a one-to-one character-to-person kind of thing, as much as we could of what I was at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And then going forward, it is the base personality splitting off from where I am today because of the different experiences. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, I liked it real well. Your character plays a very interesting part in the story. And more than that, I don't want to say because uh, things going on that we went, uh, people need to discover for themselves. Now, this book, did this come out in individual issues, Andrea? Did it come out as a collection? Because you made available to me a digital version of it, which I really appreciate being able to read it. I want to get a paper copy next time I run into you guys. But the thing I'm interested in, did you release them as individual issues? Did you put them as individual issues and then collect them as a, a graphic novel kind of setup? Because you mentioned that as a possibility. How did you guys put this book out? How did it happen? Well, our publisher, Caliber Comics, they are largely digital. Mm-hmm. And so it is available in individual issues, but on, in a digital format, like Comicsology, drive through Comics, mm-hmm. places like that, Kindle. It is available in paperback, you can get it through Amazon. You can order it through your local comic book store. We've been listed in previews back in November 2015. So people order it all the time from their normal comic book store. And we, we love comic book stores, so we want to encourage that. Mm-hmm. Caliber Comics is a smaller publisher, and a lot of smaller publishers rely on publication digitally because it's a more affordable way for them to be able to compete in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. They just don't have the firepower to be able to advertise, to list and previews as much as obviously DC, Marvel, you know, IDW, some of the really bigger publishers. Mm-hmm. So we are in the process of actually working to bring individual issues to print, mm. but that's the kind of thing that you probably would be able to get when you see us at conventions. Mm. We're doing quite a number of conventions. We just really started our first 
convention, believe it or not, you're going to laugh at this, was Megacon mm-hmm. in Orlando. Mm-hmm. So talk about being dropped in the middle of the Pacific. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Roberto and I had a blast. We mm-hmm. really did. It was a great father-son experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's been really a major takeaway is Roberto and I have always been very close. And this has been really something that we can share together and grow with both of us growing with it. It's been really cool to watch him develop as a writer in this process and to be able to share that together. But we're going to be doing a lot of different conventions. We're going to be doing a Tampa Comic Con. It's coming up in August, so we'll be there. And we've got a number of other ones already scheduled throughout the state of Florida. And then in October, we're actually going up to my home state of Michigan to the Grand Rapids Comic Con. And I'm really looking forward to that as well. But we're going to gradually get our feet wet here in Florida and then start to expand out in the country uh, as we go along. Very cool, because it's a very different kind of book. I've emphasized a lot about the darkness, but when you get near the end, things take a definite turn towards resolution. And I I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but it comes towards a brighter conclusion. I was amazed at how dark it got in the middle of the story, but, and, and, you know, it's nice to see that in the comic. Oftentimes we keep going down and down and down. It was nice to see something happens that makes a resolution in the characters, and I I really liked that so much. It was something small, too. That was the great thing about it. I just, I thought that was such a well-written part that I I just... Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, it's a... It's a hopeful story, as weird as that sounds. And if you knew me, like my wife laughs at that because she credits her own personal influence on me because I'm not Irish, okay? But I tend to be the cup half empty guy. And my wife is always the cup half full. Mm. In fact, the cup is more than half full. Mm -hmm. She's got her cup full and she's got more to give you for your cup in case you need it. Mm. But this story is very much a story of hope. Mm -hmm. And that's really what apocatastasis is all about. It's Mm -hmm. the hope that in the end, it's all going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And now it doesn't mean that you aren't going to have your butt handed to you on the way. Mm-hmm. on the journey but somehow that journey makes sense mm-hmm. and that it brings about growth it brings about restoration it brings about something better mm-hmm. and that's really i think at the root of this story and in a lot of ways at the root of these characters mm-hmm. is we want them to be growing characters that learn and develop and mm-hmm. you'll appreciate this being an old comic book hand is one of my favorite runs of comics was denny o'neill and um i'm i Neil Adams? Neil Adams, thank you. When they did the Green Lantern and Green Arrow, Mm -hmm. when they did the traveling, because Mm -hmm. that was a really cool run where they take the street-level approach traveling through America and encountering the issues that real people are dealing with and growing and developing in their vision of the world Mm -hmm. as a result. And I'm hoping that that's what we can do with our characters. I think we've made a good start of it from our first couple stories, and we'll see if we can continue to sustain that. Very cool. Now, the, you, you mentioned the ways to get there. It's like drive through comics, comicsology, see you at conventions, kind of stuff. Do you have a website for The Shepherd? We do. We're on the Caliber Comics website. We're just beginning. We don't have our own individual thing yet. Yeah. Probably the best way to follow us is on Facebook. Of course, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. But Facebook is, I would say, our best place because there's a lot of pictures there, any reviews that we get. We have links. When this interview comes out, there'll be a link on our Facebook page Mm -hmm. so that if you're following the shepherd, every new thing that's developing is found there. And it's probably the easiest way to follow us. And we love interacting with our readers. I almost cringe at saying fans because we're so small. I just feel like 
can we dare to say that we have some fans? We certainly do. I mean, we've had some really wonderful things that have been said to us by some of our readers, but we love interacting with readers. We love it when they write stuff to us on the Facebook page. And, mm-hmm. you know, what's really cool is that at the Megacon, we actually had people, because we've done comic book store signings around the state, mm-hmm. we actually had people that said, oh, I remember you, and I read your book. I bought it at X uh, comic book store and uh, really enjoyed it. And that was nice. That was mm-hmm. really cool to meet them and have that kind of a recognition moment. Mm-hmm. Well, it's one of the great things about conventions is being able to make contact with people who have read your stuff. When they get to the store, basically they have to buy it, but they take it home and read it. They don't read it in front of you, basically, so you don't really get their reaction many times. So it's a nice thing about conventions. Now, this is the first volume, and you've talked about there's three more to go. How's progress going on the second volume? How's that happening? It is 164 pages, just to put in perspective. The first story arc of Apocatastasis is 119, 120 pages. Mm -hmm. So it is a substantially longer story. It's called The Path of Souls. Mm -hmm. And that line, The Path of Souls, Mm -hmm. is actually grounded in Wendat Huron Indian mythology. Mm. And it's the idea that the Hurons, most people know them as Hurons. They lived in what is modern-day Ontario on the shores of Lake Huron. And they were in a war in the late 1640s between the Huron and the Iroquois Mm -hmm. and were driven from that region to a variety of different areas, Michigan, Quebec, eventually Ohio and points south. But they have this concept that the uh, Milky Way is actually a path that the souls take to return to the village. Uh, And the village is the place where their god and his grandmother, believe it or not, actually live and it's a place of harmony and there's great fishing and the land is good that they can grow their food and they can always hunt effectively and it's their equivalent of heaven mm-hmm. and one of our characters is a Wendat Huron mm-hmm. and that story is completely written as you would imagine it's been edited many times I'm sure we'll edit it more mm-hmm. <laughs> was saying that there never is an end to the editing, by the way. Mm. But we are in the process of doing page-by-page artwork on that, and it's going well. We're excited about this story because it's different than the first one in the sense that the first one has one artist top to bottom. This one, the concept is dealing with, imagine this, the idea of post-traumatic stress in the afterlife. Hmm. So it's an area of the afterlife that is a place where soldiers go who have died in combat and are suffering from trauma that they experienced in the midst of their death. Hmm. And we have four different soldiers that we're dealing with and telling their stories. And each of the different soldiers will have a different artist. Mm -hmm. So when you see the reality, you'll see it through their eyes Hmm. and it'll be very visual in the sense that it'll be a different artist at work. And we have one of them, as I said, the Wendat Huron Indian. We have a U.S. Marine who died in uh, Fallujah in 2004. Mm. We have a Confederate soldier who died in Fredericksburg, December 1862. Mm. And then the last character is a Napoleonic soldier who died in the city of Jaffa in uh, March 1799. Mm -hmm. So that story, as I said, is in the can and we're doing the work. And then Berto and I are actually writing the third and fourth story arcs. Mm -hmm. Which is cool. I think that you guys booked The Shepherd as an example of one of the things that I enjoy so much about today's comic industry is the fact that stories like yours can be told. You don't have to go through DC or Marvel in order to be done. You guys can make this yourselves and get it out there for people to read. And it's a really good book, really excellent stuff. It's hard to stop reading when I got started on it, which is very gripping, very well told stuff. And I just thought The Shepherd is just a great thing. And I 
encourage people if you haven't read it yet, get out there and check it out. And I think you're going to find something really interesting, a really great read. So be sure to get The Shepherd. And I applaud you guys. It's great to see a father-son working together on this kind of thing. It's just wonderful. Thank you. And that's it for this week. Be back next time when we'll have another double header with two great interviews if everything goes according to plan. But until then, keep reading your comics.